Welcome back, comrades. Congratulations on completing those last two very difficult episodes. You're doing great, and it's just going to get a lot more fun from here. And just a reminder, if you need any help understanding any of the material, you can always email readingcapital at liberationschool.org and we'll get back to you. This is the final episode where we remain at the surface level of capital before we descend into the hidden abode of production. So enjoy your last chapters flying above capitalism with a bird's eye view, so to speak. There's some logical exposition at work as Marx articulates how the exchange of commodities for commodities differs so radically from the exchange of money for money. But this latter form of exchange is what capital is all about. But we'll see some more sources of potential crises and contradictions, and we'll even get our first look at the special commodity which makes capital run, labor power. And all the while, we'll expand and deepen our understanding of value and its dynamism and the role of class and struggle. We'll also hear Marx's spot-on critique of bourgeois notions of freedom, property, and equality. The end of the episode leaves us right at the point before we discover the real origins of surplus value. Now, surplus value may be a term you are already familiar with. For most socialists, it's an early concept that we learn that when we go to work, we produce more profit for our boss than he pays us in wages. In another word, exploitation. But keep in mind that when you hear about surplus value in this chapter, Marx hasn't yet laid out that ultimate formulation, which we'll come to later on. In these earlier chapters, he's using it to explore all the different ways that extra value or new value is created. Marx will be taking us through many different types of surplus value before we get to the commonly understood definition of being solely a product of exploiting labor, which we'll get into in the next episode. So good luck and happy reading, comrades. You're beginning to hear alarm about a second mortgage shock. Last month alone, more than 70,000 families lost their homes. Stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The coronavirus pushing unemployment to its highest level since the Great Depression. American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year. Millions of Americans are receiving food stamp benefits for the first time. Would you swap working for a company in favor of living in a communist country? A surprising number of millennials in the US would do precisely that. Welcome back, comrades. In today's episode, we'll cover part two of the book, which includes chapters four through six. But before we do that, I wanna revisit a few conceptual building blocks we've established so far. So in the first chapter, we learned that the commodity is a unity of a use value and an exchange value, and different uses are only exchangeable because of a third thing, value. And value is socially necessary labor time. As exchange develops, one commodity becomes the money commodity, which serves as the equivalent form of value for all commodities and money functions as a measure of value, a means of circulation, and a means of payment. Because value as socially necessary labor time is something that you can't see, value needs some material expression. Second, whereas direct barter, or commodity to commodity, is immediate, the commodity to money to commodity circuit breaks it up in time and space. It helps circulation burst through local bounds, 
allows for potentially limitless accumulation in that you can theoretically accumulate an infinite amount of money, but you can't accumulate an infinite amount of commodities. There always has to be some relationship between money and value or socially necessary labor time. We also saw in chapter three how the contradictions between use value and value or use value and exchange value are heightened and internalized in the money form such that the distinctions between the time and the space of the purchase and the sale and the next purchase can create crises. So with that, let's move on to chapter four, the general formula for capital. Marx first shows how money arises from the circulation of commodities, which is really the circulation of congealed labor power. So now he's going to show how capital arises out of money. Money, as Marx says on the first page, is, quote, the final product of the circulation of commodities and the first form in which capital appears, end quote. So it begins first with merchant and user capital as merchants and creditors were the first to throw money into circulation and then draw a larger amount back. So money is the final result of the process of circulation and it's the starting point of capitalism. It's the beginning of capital, specifically of the rise of capital against landed property. Remember the bits about money bursting local bonds and restrictions on time and place? This is important because it shows how capital confronts and is able to defeat landed property and feudalism. Because feudalism is tied to land, it's based on landed property. It's restricted in a way that money and capital aren't. So he first makes a distinction between money and capital. Not all capital is money and not all money is capital. The difference between money as money and money as capital is located in the form of their circulation. To get at this, he goes through a list of the ways in which the CMC circuit differs from the MCM circuit. So in other words, with CMC, we have a commodity, we sell it for money, we use that money to get another commodity. But with the MCM circuit, I have money, I use it to buy a commodity, and then I sell that commodity to get money. So for the CMC circuit, the owner of the first commodity is selling in order to buy another commodity. The commodity form begins the circuit and ends the circuit. The CMC circuit is also therefore driven by the desire for use value. I sell a commodity I don't need for money in order to buy a commodity that I do need. Money merely facilitates the exchange of different use values. And the same piece of money is exchanged twice. Further, the money in this circuit is actually spent. The money I get for my commodity is spent on another commodity. The circuit, taken singularly, ends when I consume the commodity that I need. Because a use value is the end goal, we can clearly tell the difference between the beginning and the end. If I begin with the Bible, sell it for money, and use that money to buy brandy, the example that Marx gave in chapter 3, we can obviously tell the difference between the Bible and the brandy. Now, all of this is the opposite with the MCM circuit. So here, the owner of the first money is buying a commodity in order to sell that commodity. The beginning and the end of the circuit is money, and the entire process is motivated not by use value, but by exchange value. Whereas in CMC, money was used to exchange different use values, here, the commodity is used to exchange different quantities of money. This means that the original money isn't spent in the circuit, but rather advanced in it. 
Instead of the same amount of money changing place twice, the same commodity changes place twice. We observe that the CMC circuit comes to an end when the owner of the first commodity receives and consumes the final commodity. It's the opposite again with MCM. With MCM, the original owner of the money ends up with money. There's no qualitative distinction between the beginning M and the ending M. Let's hear from Marx on this on page 106 online, 148 international, and 250 in Penguin. Quote, One sum of money is distinguishable from another only by its amount. The exact form of this process is therefore MCM prime, where M prime equals M plus delta M, or the original sum advanced plus an increment. This increment or excess over the original value I call surplus value. The value originally advanced, therefore, not only remains intact while in circulation, but adds to itself a surplus value or expands itself. It is this movement that converts it into capital, end quote. So to put it differently, the capitalist is one who throws money into circulation to buy a commodity in order to end up with more money. The difference between the money advanced and the money returned is surplus value or delta M. The other crucial thing here is that when money as exchange value is the beginning and end of the circuit, the movement becomes interminable. As Marx writes, quote, the circulation of capital has therefore no limits. That's on 107 online, 150 international and 253 penguin. And again, we're seeing this repeatedly, the ways in which capital continually bursts through all restrictions. And here we have that it is limitless. So value is therefore constantly transforming. It takes on the form of money, the form of capital, the form of surplus value, the form of the commodity. But with MCM prime, value is value not only in motion, but in expanding motion. The faster this happens and the more it happens, the better capitalism is functioning. And crises happen whenever the expansion slows or stops. Marx says on the last page that MCM prime looks like a form unique to merchants' capital, but it also defines industrial or productive capital. Finally, it defines finance capital, even although here it looks like the circuit goes straight from M to M prime. So when I lend you money and then at the agreed upon date, you give me back the original money plus more, it looks like money has just magically transformed itself into more money. But in fact, there's something that happened in between and that something is the production of value or socially necessary labor time. And in the first chapter of volume two of Capital, Marx breaks down the MCM prime cycle into different forms of capital. So you have merchant capital, which buys commodities in order to sell them. You have productive capital, which buys commodities in order to make commodities. And then you have finance capital, which advances money to return more money, but generally advances it to productive capital. And there are a host of contradictions within the particular cycles that he subdivides in this. One part that sticks out to me is how can a capitalist buy a commodity and end up with more money by selling it? 
If all we need to do is resell, then why doesn't everybody just open up a vintage shop? So this is the question that Marx poses to us here, and he'll answer it later on in the next episode. Obviously, we can and we do buy things at lower prices and sell them for higher prices, right? And that's what Marx calls merchant capital. It's what merchants do. They negotiate lower prices with the producer and then sell them for a higher price. But the thing is that there's no additional value being produced by merchant capital. It plays a crucial role in capitalism because goods have to be sold in order for value to be realized. But in essence, what's happening when I buy something for a dollar and sell it for two is nothing more than a redistribution of existing value, right? There's no production of new value. And that's Marx's point here. So that brings us to chapter five, which is contradictions in the general formula of capital. Here, Marx is basically questioning where does a surplus value come from, right? So in the last chapter, he said that capital appears as if it can just add value to itself, that it looks like it, quote, lays golden eggs, end quote. If you don't know where surplus value comes from, it can indeed look like this. This is why it's only from the proletarian class standpoint that we can discover the real workings of capitalism. Because as we'll see, and as many of you probably know already, it's the working class that produces surplus value. We know that capital doesn't lay golden eggs because we put our blood, sweat, tears, and entire lives into its production. But oftentimes, to the capitalist or to the financier, it really does look as if capital merely adds value to itself. So in this chapter, Marx goes through different scenarios to eliminate certain possibilities of where surplus value originates. Specifically, he asks if there's anything within the simple circulation of capital or the mere circulation of commodities that can explain the expansion of value. So he begins with CMC and he observes that both parties can gain here, but only in terms of use values, not in terms of exchange values. This is also true with direct exchange or commodity to commodity. The introduction of money into circulation doesn't change this. He then moves on to vulgar economy and the centrality of supply and demand. But supply and demand only explains movements in prices, not in values. So in other words, supply and demand can show how prices move up and down, but when supply and demand are equal, it explains absolutely nothing. When prices diverge from values, which is totally normal, as we learn in chapter three, it doesn't explain the production of new value. He quotes from Etienne Condillac, an 18th century French philosopher who wrote the book Commerce and Government, and says that he not only mixes up or doesn't recognize the difference between use value and exchange value, but also assumes, quote, in a really childish manner that in a society in which the production of commodities is well developed, each producer produces his own means of subsistence and throws into circulation only the excess over his own requirements. That's on 112 Online, 157 International, and 261 Penguin. Marx then asks if the exchange of non-equivalents can answer the question. So if the price is raised 10% above its value, then the person who pockets that extra 10% can be faced with someone else who sells their product at an extra 10%. So in this case, no new value has been created. He then asks, well, what if there's a class that doesn't produce but only consumes? For example, 
there's a political class that lives only off of taxes or tributes. In this case, there's still no production of surplus value. The taxes or tributes that go to such a political class are used to make purchases, and the sellers who pay taxes could sell them at prices above their values and get back part of their taxes, in other words, reclaim some of their money and their value, but the political class here isn't producing any surplus value. So then Mark says, maybe the problem is that we've been looking at this from a systemic standpoint and not from the standpoint of individuals. If I can sell you something that's worth $40 for $50, I've received more money than I initially had, right? So if I rip you off somehow, I can end up with more money. But there's still no production of surplus value. As Marx puts it, this is 114 online, 160 international, and 265 penguin, quote, the value in circulation has not increased by one iota. It is only distributed differently. What is a loss of value to B is surplus value to A, what is minus to one is plus to the other, end quote. So it wouldn't matter if person A directly stole the extra money from person B. It would be the same thing. There's no new value. Person A is just taking existing value from somebody else. Now, obviously, direct theft has been and continues to be absolutely crucial to capitalism. And Marx is going to get to this later in the book in the last part. But remember, here he's trying to stay within the law of exchanges. So as a result, he says... Neither the exchange of equivalents nor the exchange of non-equivalents explains surplus value. At the same time, he says, surplus value can arise outside of circulation. Marx concludes then in the last paragraph on 116 Online, 163 International, and 269 Penguin, quote, Our friend Moneybags, who as yet is only an embryo capitalist, must buy his commodities at their value, must sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process must withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into it at his starting. His development into a full-grown capitalist must take place both within the sphere of circulation and without it. These are the conditions of the problem, hic rotis, hic salta. And now this is one place where Marx's literary style is lost a bit in the Penguin translation because in the Penguin translation, instead of our friend Moneybags, it's just the money odor. The translation of Hic Rhodes Hic Salta, which is from one of Aesop's fables, is here is Rhodes, now jump. So in other words, here's the problem. Now we have to do the work of solving it, which brings us to the next chapter, chapter six. Chapter six is titled The Buying and Selling of Labor Power, which gives us an indication that there is something special about the commodity of labor power that explains surplus value. Marx begins by stating that the expansion of value can't take place with money and has to be with the commodity in the middle of the MCM prime circuit. As he writes in the first paragraph, money bags must be so lucky as to find within the sphere of circulation in the market a commodity whose use value possesses the peculiar property of being a source of value, whose actual consumption, therefore, is itself an embodiment of labor and consequently a creation of value. The possessor of money does find on the market such a special commodity in capacity for labor or labor power. He continues to define labor power as, quote, the aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities existing in a human being which they exercise whenever they produce a use value of any description, end quote. So note here that he's talking about mental and physical capabilities. Later on, when talking about labor, he'll be talking about 
muscles, nerves, brains, etc. And so it's not just physical labor, it's all forms of labor, right? Intellectual, effective, any form of work that produces a use value. So the fact that Moneybags finds labor power on the market isn't a matter of luck. It's a matter of history and struggle. Here, Marx notes a few prerequisites for labor power to appear on the market as a commodity to be bought and sold. The first is that the worker has to be able to offer it for sale. And this means that the worker and Moneybags deal with each other on the basis of equal rights, with this difference alone that one is buyer, the other seller, both therefore equal in the eyes of the law. That's 119 Online, 165 International, and 271 Penguin. So it's important that a certain kind of equality exists, whereby the worker theoretically enters into a contract with the capitalist so that both parties consent to the buying and selling of labor power. This is an argument that the right wing constantly uses, right? If you don't like your job, get another one. The other thing is that the worker has to sell labor power for a certain period of time, thus retaining control over their own commodity. The idea of equality and consent, of course, is a fiction that's partly revealed with the next condition, which is that the worker has to have nothing else to sell besides their labor power, right? Because who would sell their labor power and work if they didn't have to? If you go to page 120 online, 166 International, and 272 Penguin, Marx ironically sums up these two conditions, quote, For the conversion of his money into capital, therefore, the owner of money must meet in the market with the free laborer, free in the double sense, that as a free person they can dispose of their labor power as their own commodity, and that on the other hand they have no other commodity for sale, end quote. And this is what freedom is under capitalism the freedom to be forced to sell our labor power in order to survive. So when the U.S. says there's no freedom in places like Cuba or Venezuela or the DPRK or any socialist country, this is what they're talking about, right? People there aren't freed from the means of production and social wealth. These preconditions, Marx continues, aren't natural, right? It's not nature that makes it so that there's capitalists on one side and workers on the other who are forced to sell their labor power to the capitalists. Quote, the relation has no natural basis, neither is its social basis one that is common to all historical periods. It is clearly the result of a past historical development, the product of many economic revolutions, of the extinction of a whole series of older forms of social production, end quote. Here, he doesn't go into how the capitalist class and the working class were created, but he will in the last part of the book. But also, and Marx acknowledges this, there's an ongoing process to this. So in the pandemic, we witnessed the production of more proletarians, right? Like small business owners or independent proprietors, they closed and are forced to sell their own labor power to others now. We also see it when small businesses are taken over by large corporations and the small business owner then often becomes an employee of the corporation in effect selling their labor power. But we'll come back to more of this later. Commodity production and money can exist in various modes of production, right? There has to be the production of commodities for exchange value, in other words, for the purposes of selling, which in turn requires a certain development of the division of labor, through which the antagonism between use value and exchange value intensifies. That is to say, as the division of labor in society develops and becomes more specialized, more commodities are oriented toward their sale rather than their use by their producer. Money and commodities existed before, even in the form of simple circulation. 
But capital can only come into being when society is divided between those who own the means of production and those forced to sell their labor power to survive. This one historical condition, Marx says on 120 Online, 167 International, and 274 Penguin, comprises a world's history. Capital, therefore, announces from its first appearance a new epoch in the process of social production. Now, there's a great deal of time and struggle between its first appearance and its constitution as a new epoch. If you think back to what Marx wrote in the preface to the first German edition, where he justified his reason for focusing on England because it was where capitalism was most developed, he also said that there were other modes of production operating. And the reason I think it's important to bring this up here is because this is one of the places that Marx reiterates that multiple modes of production can exist in any society and that there wasn't a capitalist revolution that occurred on a certain date. And afterwards, there were immediately those who owned the means of production and those who were forced to sell their labor power. It was a long developmental and antagonistic process, a long class struggle, not only globally, but within each country. And we get to this not only in part eight, but also in chapter 10 of the book and the section on relative surplus value. So there's nothing in Marx to indicate that the transformation to socialism would happen instantaneously either or that a country isn't socialist merely because there are still markets or some capitalist relations, or because value is socially necessary labor time still operates. So next, Marx looks at the value of labor power. We know that value is socially necessary labor time, so the value of labor power is the socially necessary labor time required for the production and reproduction of the worker. This means that the worker has to be able to show up for work the next day replenished, but also that they have to raise the next generation of workers. So it's about production and reproduction, or as we might say today, also about social reproduction. In the next paragraph, he goes through some of the ways in which this value is determined. It's determined first by workers' natural wants, such as food, clothing, fuel, and housing, all of which vary according to the climactic and other physical conditions of the country or region. In the second place, it's determined by the number and extent of their so-called necessary wants, as also the modes of satisfying them, which are the product of historical development, and which also involve a moral element. And he says that at any given moment in time in any region, the average quantity of the means of subsistence necessary for the laborer is practically known. So what does all of this mean? Beginning with the last point, the value of labor power, like all value, is immaterial and can't be seen except as it's represented in another commodity. So the value of labor power is represented by the bundle of commodities necessary for the production and reproduction of the worker. We can identify this, not spontaneously, of course, but through research, right? I mean, you can figure out in any given city or country what the average rent or mortgage payment is, the average down payment or security deposit, the average cost of utilities, healthcare, food, education, and so on. This is in many ways what living wage campaigns are about, and they generate data to demonstrate what the actual value of labor power is, and they fight to have wages, or the price of labor power, raised to meet the value of labor power. And second, there's going to be climactic and physical differences. If you live in a place where by nature or custom or a combination of both, people don't use air conditioning, then air conditioning obviously won't factor into the value of labor power. Or if there's an efficient public transportation system that's widely used, then the cost of that rather than fuel for a car will go into the value of labor power. 
And then there's also a cultural element. In one of Althusser's essays, he writes that, quote, Marx noted that English workers need beer while French proletarians need wine, end quote. I haven't been able to find that particular quote from Marx, but I I wanted to put it in here because I think that it's interesting and illustrates Marx's point about this. Now, the historical and moral element is essentially saying that there's a factor of struggle involved. Uh, This is a key area of class struggle that we'll cover in Chapter 10, but ultimately it's through waging struggle that workers can include more commodities into their wages or that the capitalists can struggle to include fewer. Right. And this also turns on the distinction between needs, wants or, you know, desires in that what might be a desire today is a need tomorrow. And the transformation of a need into a desire may be the result of a class struggle. One example of this is the right to free education. If a job requires a college degree, then the job should technically pay for that degree. Right. But we have a situation in the U.S. and many other countries in which workers are forced to take on debt in order to essentially gift their employer part of the value of their own labor power. And this is a useful and persuasive argument for free higher education that would be paid for by taxing the rich. Why should workers have to pay for their own costs of production and reproduction? Because value is a dynamic social relation, if the value of a necessary commodity like rent or heating rises, the value of labor power rises as well, and so should the wage. But there might also be a case in which the value of a necessary commodity lowers, but the wage stays the same. And in that case, the worker can buy more of that commodity for the same wage. So here we see the difference between prices and values becomes important. If the price of labor, the wage, is lower than its value, then workers are forced into poverty, and at times, the state steps in to make up some of the difference. This is what happens when workers at Amazon or Walmart or any number of places need social benefits like food stamps, even though they're working full-time. Ultimately, it's because the wage is lower than the value of their labor power, and so the state is stepping in to subsidize for capital. Derek, you brought up the idea that the employer should pay for education, and that instantly struck me as such a radical demand today. Could you imagine telling Amazon, Walmart, and so on, that they have an obligation to pay for the college education of their workers? But this makes so much sense, actually, because what they're doing is profiting off of the education that each student will be using in their areas of work. So could you expand more on this? And also, how can a college education cost $100,000? And to contrast, what does education look like under socialism? So yeah, in the US, the price of education is outrageous. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One of them is administrative bloat, right? So presidents bring in more and more administrators with higher salaries. And at some point, there will be so many administrators that they'll have nothing left to administer. But, you know, on the other hand, in the U.S., we've never really had public and private universities. So even public universities need private funds, and private universities also rely on public funds. And as the government has withdrawn funding from higher education in general, it's forced the price of all educations up. So as a result, many universities seek alliances with corporations for funding. 
Marx will write later on about how science is a kind of free gift to capital, but now it's a bit different if you just consider how many research corporations are set up by universities and have partnerships with them. So students are effectively paying money to work to do this research for free. And it also highlights how science isn't impartial, which is a point that Marx makes throughout the entire book. But relatedly, the price of education is even higher than what the university says because students have to finance it through loans. So you end up paying twice or 10 times as much over the long haul. And in the US, there's no right to education. It's not in the constitution. Other capitalist countries have affordable and even free education. And in socialist countries, education has been and is a human right, it's guaranteed. Students get stipends so they don't have to work and they can focus on their studies. The other thing is that under socialism, production and education are organized around what society needs, not profit. So there's actually more freedom in terms of what education you pursue, right? In the US, there's this myth that you can study whatever you want. But that's not true, right? I mean, unless you're a member of the capitalist class, because you have this debt hanging over your head, which is why so many people end up majoring in business or economics or whatever, right? Under socialism, you have more freedom because you don't have to pay. You're not forced with that debt. Marx talks about how labor power is a unique commodity for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, it's embodied, right? It's literally part of a human being. Second, it's given on credit to the capitalist, but the capitalist doesn't pay any interest on it, right? So you get paid at the end of the work week or, you know, every two weeks or every month or whatever, but the wage is set before you actually work. And so you're basically fronting your boss, your labor, and then you don't receive any interest on it. And that's one of the few places that happens. Labor power, on the other hand, is the same as any other commodity in that there's an antagonism between its use value and value, between the socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity of labor power and the actual use or consumption of labor power. Let's go to Marx here. We are on 123 online, 172 international, and 279 penguin. Marx writes, quote, the consumption of labor power is completed, as in the case of every other commodity, outside the limits of the market or the sphere of circulation. Accompanied by Mr. Moneybags and by the possessor of labor power, we therefore take leave for a time of this noisy sphere, where everything takes place on the surface and in view of all men, and follow them both into the hidden abode of production, on whose threshold there stares us in the face, quote, no admittance except on business, end quote. Here we shall see not only how capital produces, but how capital is produced. We shall at last force the secret of profit-making, end quote. The value of labor power is realized through its sale, which takes place on the market, yet it's not consumed there. So we have to leave this sphere, which Marx says just a little later on is a sphere, quote, within whose boundaries the sale and purchase of labor power goes on. It is in fact a very Eden of the innate rights of man. There alone rule freedom, equality, property, and Bentham. So this is obviously a dig not only at Bentham, but also the bourgeois political economists, the philosophers who only look at the surface of things in exchange. 
and therefore can't see the secret of profit-making or where surplus value is produced. In the marketplace, it looks as if equality, the rights of property owners, and the self-interested individual prevail. In other words, in the realm of circulation, as Marx wrote in Chapter 2 on Exchange, both the capitalist and the worker are free. The former is free to purchase the labor power of the worker, and the latter is free to sell their labor power. This is what distinguishes capitalism from other modes of production in which labor power isn't a commodity that's bought and sold. There's also an abstract equality between the two. Both the worker and the capitalist are owners of their respective commodities. The capitalist owns the money, the worker owns the labor power. They're exchanging equivalents. The note about Bentham here refers to Jeremy Bentham, who was an English philosopher and is often credited with founding modern utilitarianism in which the greatest good of society comes from all individuals pursuing their own individual interests. In the sphere of circulation, this happens, right? Both the capitalist and worker are indeed looking out for their own private interests. The capitalist needs the labor power from the worker and the worker needs the money from the capitalist. The innate rights of man, a phrase included in the U.S. and other bourgeois constitutions, holds that these rights, equality, freedom, and the individual pursuit of happiness are what the state is supposed to protect. But this is a superficial appearance or an ideology, which means it's an imaginary relationship we have with each other, ourselves, and the world. It arises not from the idealist strivings of philosophers, but from the actual operations of capitalism. We have to get below these superficial appearances, which we'll do when we get to the sites of production and examine what exactly the consumption of the use value of labor power looks like. But here with this chapter, I think the really crucial thing to remember is that the value of labor power is determined by class struggle, by cultural, moral, climactic conditions, by a range of factors that ultimately it's the result of class struggle and that there is a crucial distinction between the value of labor power and the use value of labor power. That's really going to be where surplus value is produced, how it's produced, rather. So, comrades, that brings us to the end of part two of the book. In the next episode, we're going to begin part three. We're going to look at chapters seven through nine. Solidarity. Solidarity.